0: Charlie here on The Music Show on WRBH, 88.3 FM, New Orleans. Uh-huh. This week, Thomas McClary, uh-huh. uh-huh. a world renowned musician, founder of the legendary group The Commodores, the band behind such hits as Easy, as in Easy like Sunday morning, and Brick House, you know the group. Mr. McClary. Yes, sir. Hey, it's Charlie.
1: Hey, Charlie, how you doing, man?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm great.
0: Well, I thank you for calling in uh, to what? the music show.
1: Uh thank you for having me, Charlie. It's an honor.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the honor is ours because um here in the city of music especially someone who's been so uh pivotal in the music industry new orleans always loves to hear about that so okay, okay we okay. thank you for having you on and um why so you're in florida now which is i understand where you grew up
1: that is correct i was the first uh i talk about this in my book rock and soul uh about being the first african-american to integrate uh, the public school here in Lake County.
0: That's incredible. And that was even before the seminal uh, Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which is That's
1: right. It was before it was uh, implemented and it was right in the midst of the civil rights movement. And um, I think it was a watershed moment for me because it gave me an opportunity to implement what I call Uh, the Martin Luther King principles and, you know, Jack Robertson principles, and that was uh, the nonviolence and to love and, and of course, allow the power of love to um, just be the dominant driving force. And, of course, uh, going through that, it gave me a lot of fortitude and grit and determination. So I attribute that, actually, to the success that I had in the music industry because, as you might know, Charlie, the music industry is extremely tough. You know, there were a lot of struggles to stardom, and I talk about that in my book, Rock and Soul, about some of the stardom, of some of the struggles, I'm sorry, to stardom. And had I not had that watershed moment in the... And the public school, being the first African-American to integrate the school, I don't think I could have survived the music industry. <laughs> walking to school, I I had uh, objects thrown at me. There were oranges that literally hit me in my back as I was walking. And as I turned around to see, you know, who had done it, it was coming to find out it was just some, someone in a car that had driven by and threw, thrown the oranges. And to have your sweater burnt on you while, as you wear it and to be denied the opportunity to to shower with the rest of the g- kids. And, of course, I was a quarterback at, at the all-black school. And, uh, you know, obviously I was not going to be the quarterback there. Right. And, um, but, but you know, what was so rewarding for me, I I went back to my uh, class reunion of 40 years and, um, uh, the kids asked ask me to just tell uh, a 10-minute story of what it was really, really like for me, and it was good. I I thanked everybody. I thanked the uh, even the ones that threw at me and that you know um, that burnt my sweater and and I told them that you know uh, a lot of the the generational ignorance came from. What they were taught, and once they saw that I was, you know, different and that we all are the same, but even though we were different colors, um, it was amazing to see them just line up to give me a hug and just uh, obviously to get my autograph and to, you know, brag to their kids and their grandkids that they went to school with me. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it was uh It was really good. It was a healing moment for us all. And I think when I look at um, how far we've come, we still have a ways to go, you know, when you look at some of the racial tensions that's happening even as we speak today, you know. We love is the only answer to it. And, you know, when we wrote our songs, um, why in the world would anybody put chains on me? Mm-hmm. I paid my dues to make it. I mean, when you listen to those kind of lyrics and easy, mm-hmm. um, it it was the inspiration. And if you didn't have some of the experiences, you know, uh, the three times the ladies and the brick houses and the eases would may not have happened. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: <laughs> right, right. And love is the message that that uh, resounds through your new book, uh, Rock and Soul which I understand uh, listeners can pick up. It's 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 for sale now, correct?
1: That is correct. They can pick it up at Amazon.com and Bonds and & Nobles and uh, also at my website, ThomasMcClary.com.
0: Wow. Well, I've been reading it, and it's 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 quite an intense and inspirational story, I have
1: oh, to say. Oh, thank you so much, Charlie. You know, we, we have um, had uh, some great, uh, reviews and uh, responses from it all around the world. We introduced it initially in London, and BBC had us on, and it was 70 million viewers, and the lights at the station just lit up. That was kind of a historic moment for them um, to see the kind of reaction that people were just um, saying how much uh, of an inspiration, because actually when you think about it all of us um if you can talk about real situations that uh that's relatable like we did in our songs uh, you know that penetrates to the hearts and the souls of people now you're transcending race and uh, nationalities and and languages and everything you know mhm
0: and it's not just the lyrical content of these of these songs uh you were the guitar player in the commodores and uh your your guitar sound speaks of love at least to me and and, and millions Aww. of other listeners how how well, did you how did you develop that sound
1: well thank you uh Charlie. uh i talk about this in the in my book rock and soul as well and it's you know about me creating what I refer to as the signature sound mm. of the Commodores. And I did that by integrating melodies and notes and rhythms and um and trying to set a new trajectory, you know, that would be trend setting. And um as you note know, in songs like Easy and Brick House, um, uh, when you have lyrics that are really powerful what you want to do is obviously have the right marriage of music with that mm. and it's um, it took me uh, to show you the kind of patience and zeroing in on and dialing it in two hours just getting the right tone for that guitar solo offense it's and easy.
0: I wanted to ask you about that. I, can you can you reveal your secrets on that, or is that? Yes, I
1: will. In fact, uh, I've had so many guitarists ask that you know question. And uh, in fact, Ray Parker Jr., who is another uh, great guitarist, uh, he also um, endorsed my book. He asked me that same question. Well, the, what I did was it was a combination of using the board and amplifications I'll never forget uh, the engineer you know Carol Harris he was like, man uh, you uh, you, <laughs> you this is um, you're violating all the rules I said yeah, that's what we, wanna <laughs> we want to do want we want this to be different you know so yeah. uh, we um, we did some things that was very unorthodox um, in terms of uh, because normally when you run something directly through the board, it's going to just sound um, pretty normal or just, uh, uh, you know, like a guitar coming through the board. You right, know just I mean? a
0: dry. Uh, dry, uh, yeah. you
1: know. And, man, I made him just uh, bend the rules, and we just uh, had a, a distorted sound from the board, actually. <laughs>
0: The guitar is actually not your your first instrument that you ever picked up. Is that right?
1: That's right. I actually played the ukulele initially, Charlie, and my son uh, plays it as well. But my brother was the you know the real uh, musician in our family that introduced me to that instrument, and I, and I, and I have to uh, attribute a lot of the style that I play uh, on the guitar to what I. Learning how I played the ukulele, and it, it was um, trying to um, do a combination of techniques. When you know my funk stuff, like Slipper went Wet.
0: So that, that was... translated from the ukulele.
1: Yeah, <laughs> isn't that amazing?
0: Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> Before the Commodores, and you talk about all this in your new book, Rock and Soul. Uh, Before the Commodores, there was a group called the Mystics. Mm -hmm. And uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about how that group came to be, and how eventually it became a part of something larger known as the Commodores?
1: Sure. Uh, I went to Tuskegee University as a freshman. I'm standing in the freshman line, registration line, I should say, and. And I'm trying to decide, did I make the right decision coming to the school? It was raining, and, you know, it had rained that whole three days that I was there. And that was dreary, small town, didn't know anybody. And I'm standing there in this line. Um, I had put a band together called the Matadors in high school, and I thought, well, maybe I should try to put a band together for the freshman talent show. And I heard this gentleman whistling who was standing about – Four or five guys back of me, and I—he was whistling a song by Eddie Harris. Eddie Harris was a jazz saxophonist, and he had a song called "Listen Here." And that song had—and this gentleman was whistling all of the nuances of the solo of that song, you know. So I turned, I said, "Hey man, are you a musician?" He was very shy, you know. He says, "Nah, not really." This guy was Lionel Richie, and I said, well, look, man, I'm trying to put a band together to be on a talent show. Do you know any musicians? He says, well, I live here in Tuskegee, and my grandmother lives across the streets from the campus, and I know a couple of musicians, and if you want to audition these guys, you can do it at my grandma's uh, on Friday. And sure enough, he called these guys up, and um, I came to his grandma's, and here he comes down the stairs playing the sax, and I said, "Hey, man, I thought you said you wouldn't be <laughs> He says, "Oh, I will play a little bit." I said, "Okay, you're in the band." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, how we the freshman talent show was uh, uh, designed for the upperclassmen to come and just kind of, you know, throw penis at you or whatever, or laugh or whatever the case might be. And when the curtains opened up, everybody went behind the curtains because they were stage fright except me and the drummer. And and so after we won, I introduced the band members, and they finally came out from behind the curtains. And, uh, but that was the beginning of what the group would call the mystics. And, of course... Uh, there was another group called the Jays who were a campus group as well, but they're, um, they had a lot of members that had graduated from, uh, and they were trying to uh, recruit other members, and I approached them because we didn't have the equipment, and they had the equipment, and so we merged. And uh, as we were trying to come up with a name, nobody would uh, vote on the other guy's suggestion. So I said, well, to Michael Gilbert, one of the guys from the Jays, listen, we're going to blindfold you and, and open up a dictionary, and whatever word that you point to, that's going to be the name of the band. And, of course, uh, the first word he pointed to was commode. And we <laughs> was like, no, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the commodes, <laughs> that's not going to work. No. So we let him, he did a redo on that, and uh, the second time it landed on Commodores, and that's how we got our name.
0: That's great, and that's a great name. And then soon you guys were touring with the Jackson 5, is that correct?
1: That, that is correct. In fact, uh, that was our first major break. Um, you know, we met our manager uh, in, in New York, and that's a whole other funny story how we met him, but we were um, just, you know, very courageous uh, going to New York, just no money, you know. And deciding that we were going to just try and make it, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: obviously um, uh, we got there and um our equipment got stolen, so here we are with no equipment. And we go to this uh club that all the celebrities hang out, and we thought, here comes this guy that's trying to sell our equipment back to us, you know. It's like, man, that's our equipment. So the gentleman says, look, give him $50. He'll give the equipment back. We we don't have $50, we told the guy. He says, well, all right, I'm going to loan you the 50 bucks. Get your equipment, and I'm going to see about letting you sit in at Smalls here because the house band is going to take a break. Uh-huh. Well, this guy turns out to be our manager. He loans us the 50 bucks. We get the equipment back. He grew up with a young lady named Suzanne DePass who happened to now – got this job at Motown Records, and she, her first assignment was to Jackson 5 and to coordinate their tour. So she thought about her good friend who had, was managing this band, college band, called The Commodores, and I asked him if he would like to audition his band for the gig, and we did, and of course we won the audition, and we toured now two years without a contract, without a record, with the hottest group in the country, which was just a dream come true for us. I mean, I'll never forget the first time we met Michael and his brothers in person. We were stuck in the dressing room because they hadn't worked out all the logistics of how to get them out of there without the crowd just overwhelming them. All right. (laughs) And so... uh, that's when we really learned that uh, Michael was not only a genius musically, he was brilliant at just business and marketing as well, you know, because none of the people, they couldn't figure out how to get us, get them out of there. So Michael says, look, why don't we have the Brink truck come, and then we'll let the Commodores ride in the limousine as a decoy, but they have to <laughs> s- squat down in a car so only their afro would show out of the windows.
0: So everybody would think it's...
1: <laughs> everybody would think they are us, and we could go the opposite direction.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's brilliant.
1: That <laughs> yeah, was brilliant poor little <laughs> kid back then.
0: <laughs> and uh, your book, Rock and Soul, is actually full of uh, several displays of, I think, brilliant business acumen, like you mentioned, but and not always on behalf of Michael, but on, on your own behalf um for example you guys refused the advance from Barry Gordy and Motown on your first contract
1: that is correct in fact that was unheard of back then i mean even today when you when when an artist gets a recording contract they're so mostly time they're so excited they just man they okay what do i have to do i just want to go in and record yeah and motown had, had a, a track record you know of all of these uh hits and all these artists that they developed and uh, they, what I call it, it, created what like an assembly line to um, uh, producing all these hits. And they had, you know, and we said, no, nah, we do not want to do that um, because we wanted to record our own. And what they were doing, they had musicians come in and play and then they would have writers, uh, you know, write the songs, and then the singers would just come in and sing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Temptations, the Four Tops, you know, the Jackson 5, Donna Ross, the Supremes, all of them, you know, had that same formula. And we went, nah, we're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And Barry, uh, they were stunned. They was like, you mean we've given you guys two years of exposure with the Jackson 5? And you're not going to capitalize on this? So finally, Barrett says, look, just let them, leave them alone. And if they don't, if it doesn't work, it'll be a tax write-off. Forget it. Well, we went in and we wrote and played on our, and produced our first album, Machine Gun. And it was the biggest selling album in the history of Motown uh, at that time. And Motown had never, um, you know, they had sold gold four to fives, but they'd never sold a gold album. And, of course, that gave us uh, negotiation uh, power for our new contract. And so we said, hey, we're out of (laughs) here. So Barry says, hold on, not so quick. What is it going to take to keep you guys? Mm. And we said, we're going to have to share in our publishing rights. So, we were the first act in the history of Motown to share in our publishing rights, which uh, at that time, uh, no one had that. And uh, as a result of, the, of us, Stevie Wonder got his and Marvin Gaye and Norman Whitfield and all the other writers.
0: That's incredible. That really is incredible.
1: Yeah, it was pretty, uh, that was pretty phenomenal for a bunch of college guys to come in Revolutionized Motown like that, you know.
0: Yeah, and and the album itself, Machine Gun, went on to break records of its own. Uh, as you mentioned, it was the first gold record that Motown had, and and uh, it sort of launched your group into the stratosphere. It seems.
1: It I mean, did. You were bigger and than you know, Beatles we always the thought sense. of ourselves as the Black Beatles, you know, and we actually broke the Beatles' attendance record. As a result of that first album, as well in the Philippines. So, so you know, we were um, ground, it was a ground breaking, trend setting, um, trailblazing event.
0: As, as a man who has clearly shown himself to be adept at handling the music industry, which you've described in your book as, as quite a, uh, a fraught industry, what advice would you give to young musicians just starting out?
1: Well, first I would tell them um uh, to be um very uh strong about in their own convictions and their beliefs about the music and have the passion for it. Don't rely on someone else to validate who you are or who you or think you are. And secondly, I would say to them um have a clear understanding about the business aspects of of what it is that you're uh, getting involved in. You know, uh, read as much material about publishing uh, and about owning your publishing. And, of course, um, ASCAP and some of the other organizations that monitor airplay. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, you know, you have downloading now and you have streaming. And... um, But don't let stats and all that determine how you want to approach your music. Just um, try to keep pushing the envelope and try to um, stay uh, within ourselves, but express ourselves in a way that's truthful and uh, and stay authentic.
0: In, uh, it seems like you've you've sort of dedicated a, a, a portion of your life, a, a significant portion, to sort of reinforcing those values and, and helping helping artists and helping humanity as a whole uh, stay true to itself and and help each other. Why don't you tell me some about some of your philanthropic efforts?
1: Oh yes, thank you, Charlie. I'm glad you asked that. It is very important, man, to give back. And what you know, we. I think as a responsibility of those uh, that have been given much, much is required. And, you know, you have a lot of opportunities if you just look around in your own community, you know. Until I started raising money for children who were suffering from, from lupus and arthritis, I didn't realize that disease affected children. And then, of course, spent, you know, 14 years just... Raising money for the senior citizens as well. The ones that don't have health insurance, for instance, that that they need emergencies, um, operations, or whatever. And of course, our veterans. This country is what it is because our veterans have, some of them, you know, obviously have lost their lives, you know, fighting for this country. And so they come back uh, from the war zones and. Some of them are still dealing with a lot of different issues, and so we, um, we concentrate a lot on that. And, of course, um, just helping the youth and the youth departments and churches around the world. I, I go and work with them to help develop their music departments because when you think of the Little Riches and the James Browns and the Commodores of the world, the Rita Franklins of the world, we all got started in the churches, and um, it gives them a place to develop their music and to get feedback from an audience and uh, and at the same time, it kind of helps keep them out of trouble you know so um, it looks like the more you 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 put out those kind of positive things, uh, it just comes back in in different ways in different people in different forms, you know?
0: Yeah, that's so nice.
1: We have also a new uh, record that's out uh, with my children, uh, Mariah, who's a twin daughter, and my son, Ryan, the three of us collaborated on a project, and the new song from that project is called Do It, uh, just came out. Uh, today is, I mean, yesterday is, as a fact.
0: Wow. I
1: just finished a video on it.
0: Oh, that's and, great.
1: Yeah. Do you I mind if I play it? a little bit of it? I'm sorry? Do
0: you mind if I play a little bit of it on the yeah, air Yeah,
1: please. That would be awesome, man.
0: All right. I'll, I'll cue it up.
1: And if you had to imagine what the original Commodores would be releasing in 2017, 2018, this would be the, the direction of the sound, of the signature sound. Alright. Hey,
0: McClary, the, the legend, the man the father, the philanthropist along with his children Mariah and Ryan Mr. McClary looks like our time here is, is sort of coming to a, a quick close, unfortunately Well
1: Charlie, I, I want to thank you man uh, and I want to thank our audience out there I just want to remind all of our great fans and listeners you can pick up the book Rock and Soul at amazon.com or you can pick it up at thomasmclary.com on my website and also the new single do it you can obviously iTunes, CD Baby uh, Spotify uh, it's everywhere you can download it and obviously we're going to be appreciative of all the support just yeah. do it do it do it do it
0: Thomas McLary. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.